It's also a privilege every week to be back in the Word of God. We are picking back up this week in 1 Samuel. And as you know, we have been talking over the course of these past few weeks about the different sins that we saw happen in the lives of Hophni and Phineas and others, which become so relevant to us. And so today we're talking about the holiness of God. And we will be coming out of 1 Samuel chapter 5. Now, R.C. Sproul actually wrote probably his most famous book, which is called The Holiness of God. And in that book, he does his absolute best to try to encompass all of what Scripture says to equivocate what we understand about God and his holiness. And I will tell you, as good as that book is, as revered as that book is, that book actually falls utterly short. Isaiah, in his book in the Bible, is given a vision of God, and he's given a vision of God in eternity. And he tries to write down and describe the things that he saw. But again, Isaiah himself fell utterly short. Paul speaks of having been caught up into the third heaven and says that he saw and heard things that man cannot utter. There is something uniquely powerful yet hitting about the nature of who God is, and that is what we call his holiness. John Piper describes the holiness of God like this, that God's holiness is his infinite value as the absolutely unique morally perfect, permanent person that he is and who by grace made himself his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is. Now, that is a bit of a mouthful to say, but the sum total of the essence of God, who God is, is found in his holiness But somehow that is also the most underrated quality of his personhood. So today we're going to learn about the holiness of God from the way that he responds to a specific situation regarding the ark in the Bible and see where we can land regarding God's holiness. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 5. It says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. 
So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought around the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God of, to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it return to his own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray. Lord, first of all, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the nature of who you are. But God, there is something deep. There is something dark. There is something seemingly mystical about your holiness. And God, I pray that we would have clarity about who you are, that in the same vein that we fear and revere you, that because of your holiness, we will love you and see you as you are. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So there is obviously a lot of um, context here because there are all these different references being made. Some of them are making references regarding um, different cities and places. Some of them are making references regarding different cultural habits. But more specifically, I think the deepest cultural reference that's being made here is about this God named Dagon. And so we need to be able to work all this out. We need to be able to work out what exactly is happening with the ark and what does the ark represent. First of all, we know all about the ark being captured because we saw that last week. That's actually the thing that led to the death of Eli, that he hears of the ark being captured after the fact that he realizes that his sons are dead. And it leads to him dying because he realized that the sins of himself and his sons had now become a nationwide crisis. But see, there's this other critical issue that we need to deal with as well. The ark should not have been with them in the first place. Let me try to explain God in a way that I'm telling you, I already know is going to fall just as short as those other men have written about him. But we need to do our best to understand God. Now, the nature of God is so vastly greater than we can explain him that when we read about who he is versus man-made gods like Zeus or the universe or even Baal, that we always believe, well, our God can't be like this. This can't be who our God is. But in particular, if we, if we want to be contextual, God isn't like Baal. Now, there is no mention of Baal in our text, but let me tell you who Baal is. Baal was the false god of many of the people in the ancient Middle East, and they all worshipped him. And they saw him as the god who was over fertility. But he was also considered to be the king of all of the gods. Now, he also had another god that was under him in hierarchy, and his name was Dagon. And that is who we actually see who is being mentioned here in our text. 
See, he was responsible for the crop fertility for these worshipers. Now, though Baal was considered the king, Dagon was actually his father. In order to appease Baal, temples would be built because they believed that he would battle the god of death and infertility every seven years. And if he won, then their crops would grow and they would be well fed. And so in order to gain his favor, they would offer worship to him. They would offer sacrifices to him. They wanted to get his favor. They believed that his statues and that his temple were sacred, that they were holy. And so they offered to him in order to gain that favor. See, that may give us some context to the, why, the reason why the Israelites thought it would be fitting to take the ark of God to a place where they were having a battle, thinking that it would lead them to win. They were actually trying to gain favor with God. Now, the reason they were trying to gain favor with God is because this is what you had to do in order to gain favor with little g gods. You had to give offerings. You had to make sacrifices. You had to appease them because there is something missing about these little g gods and his holiness. They were touchable because they weren't real. They had no depth. They had no value. They weren't holy. And see, these gods could be easily moved merely by someone's goodness. And see, in this sense, they wanted God to be someone like the little g-gods that they could invoke by some good deeds, by some obedience, by some sacrifices. But see, the problem for them and the problem for us is God ain't like that. See, That very quality about God is actually what makes God holy. God isn't cheap. (laughs) He isn't just appeased by gifts because of his unblemished nature. That is how you know that all the other false gods are actually created by man because they respond the way man would want their gods to respond. How is that? Through good works. Quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I do these little things, I make these these tasks, I check these boxes, and I'll be accepted of God. But I want you to think about it like this. If we consider God to be a politician, and I told you, you know, you can actually get everything from this guy, everything you desire, everything you want, if you just bribe him. If you just bribe this guy, he'll give you everything you want. A few gifts here and there, and whatever you, you want, you'll get. And if you knew that, you might be inclined to elect this guy. See, especially if you had this false sense of moral goodness about yourself, you think, well, I would only bribe him because I need good things. I want good things done. You, so you, you may be inclined to elect such a person. But then... That would be until you found out that he took bribes from everybody. And then you'd realize that if he can be so easily bought by anyone, then the dignity of his office has been stripped. Yet, we want this with God. We want a God who is moved by us having enough faith. We want a God who is moved by us praying hard enough, by us fasting long enough, 
And I'm telling you now, if you had a God that could be bought and sold by anyone, then you would realize that whoever could offer enough would be the person who is really in control, not God. I mean, if we had a God that was so cheap that he just did the stuff that we prayed for, what about the people praying against the stuff that we're praying for? What way is out there? No, see, we don't need a God who answers or who moves at our every whim and our beckoning. We need a God who is fixed in eternity, who actually has a sovereign plan that he is working out all throughout the annals of time, and that we pray that our life finds favor in him, not that he finds favor in us. I want you to see what happens 20 years later with the ark during the rule of David. It's going to sound like it's irrelevant. It's it's really relevant. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It starts in the first verse. It says, David again, David is king now, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him at Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and he took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. We're going to pause right there. When the ark gets to the Philistines, which is in our text, they keep it as a spoil of war. It is a bit of a badge of honor to say that they had defeated not just Israel, but that Israel's God wasn't like their God. We have defeated them, and so they took him and they put him next to their God, Dagon, because they felt Dagon was superior to the God of Israel. But what happens? Next day they come in there, this sculpture, this statue of Dagon was turned over. Then the next day, not only was he turned over, but his head and his hands were cut off. Then the people are inflicted with sickness and tumors. See, I'm just going to be honest. When we read this kind of stuff about God, when non-believers read this kind of stuff about God, this is actually what makes makes it difficult for them to believe in God. What kind of God is this? He's cutting off hands of statues, turning them upside down, giving people tumors, killing people. What kind of God is this? See, this is the thing, and, and this is where most people struggle. 
We know we can't really have a God who is moved by our every work and our every whim. But see, the alternative is no better either. We, we know if we don't have a God moved by our every whim, then we, we also don't want a God who causes tumors on people for not obeying his rules. A God who killed others for not obeying his rules. But see, that's where people go wrong with who they think God is. They think that God punishes those who don't follow his rules. But see, this is the issue. None of us follows his rules. Not a single one of us. Every single one of us has broken every commandment against God. Every single one of us. Yet we remain. There were people in the Old Testament who broke his rules. Hophni and Phinehas for a long time broke the rules, yet they lived. So what kind of God is this? How do I know that he's not a God who doesn't, who doesn't kill people who, who don't follow the rules? Well, let me show you something interesting. Look at the rest of that 2 Samuel text in, text in verses 10 through 11. It says, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained there in the house of of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, I don't know what's happening here, but something crazy is going on, all right? Let's think about this. David knew he had just seen a man die for mishandling the ark, for breaking the rules. And so he knew that if I mishandle this ark, I'm probably going to die too. And so he sticks the ark, the ark in the house of a foreigner. And you know, I mean, we've learned a little bit about David. You know, David was probably waiting with bated breath to say, all right, how long is it going to take for him to die? This man probably had no clue what he was receiving. Because it wasn't supposed to be in anybody's home either. But then something miraculous happens. He doesn't die. (laughs) He lives. Not only does he live, but he's actually blessed. His house receives favor for him having the ark in it. What is happening here? Is God just like these idols who wields with an iron fist arbitrarily who has no rhyme or reason for the things that he does no he's showing us the same thing here that he showed the israelites when they tried to bring that ark to the battle i am not at your mercy you are at the mercy of an all-powerful all-knowing god See, the mistake that the Israelites made was that they thought that they could just get to God on their terms. They thought that they could just wield God around for their own purposes, but they learned the hard way that you cannot handle a holy and righteous God any kind of way that you decide. And look, we all know this. We all understand value. You do not drive and handle a Nissan Versa the way you do a Maserati. You just don't. You know that because it has this value, and so you handle it with a different care, with a different level of reverence than you do a Nissan Versa. I mean, no problem with a Nissan Versa if you're driving one, but it ain't no Maserati. 
And, but, but see, if you did see someone abusing a Maserati, driving it off-road, mishandling it, not driving it away, not taking care of it, you would immediately not think there's something wrong with that car. You would think there's something wrong with you. How could you handle this thing with this value this way, so carelessly, so callously? You see, that's the same thing. See, the ark itself is not the value, but it is what that ark represented. It was supposed to be in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where the glory of God rested over that ark. It was such a unique place that only the high priest went in once a year to offer sacrifices there. And you know, when he went in there, he went in with bells on. Because if he went in there and was not clean, you know what's going to happen to him? He would drop dead. What were the bells for? The bells were at the end of his fringes so that if anybody heard those bells no longer going off, they would slide this long paddle in and drag his body out. Because they weren't going in either lest they fall dead. See, we have to reconcile. Why is God this way? Why is he so difficult? Why is he so distant? Why is he so complicated? Why can't we just touch him? Why does he want to stand so distant? Why does he want to be so aloof? And I can tell you why. Because there is this great gap. Tim Keller calls it this chasm between us and God. There is this gulf between us and God. And in the middle of that gulf is our sin. Now, some of us would say, well, why? Why would God create such a gulf, such a gap, such a chasm between us and him? But he didn't. We created it. We created that chasm. Our sin in the garden drove us from God. We were driven from his presence because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. It will not happen. See, Uzzah doesn't just die because he disobeys. Let me tell you the other reason why he died. He died because he thought that the ground was dirtier than he was. He thought that it would be worse for that ark to touch the ground than his hands. But see, the ground was doing what it was supposed to do. The ground was glorifying God. It was honoring God. He created the ground to grow and do all this. The one person who wasn't doing what they were supposed to do was sinful other, who thought that he was cleaner than the ground. None of us is cleaner than the ground. None of us is worthy to touch God. None of us is worthy to be in the presence of God. A few days ago, there was this, and I'm sure you've seen this by now, there was this relationship guru guy, 53 years old, on his Instagram page, with 100,000 people watching. And he told this obviously younger Christian woman that she was not going to get married if she was unwilling to have sex before marriage. He even has said in the past that women like her 
will die alone and single. Now, that same night that he told this woman that, he questioned her church. He even questioned what God has spoken in his word. He went out and he met a woman. She's 20 years his junior. And they had sex. And the next morning, he fell on top of her dead. No matter what, whenever you look in the Bible and you saw someone fall dead, people didn't try to explain it away. They never said maybe he didn't have a good diet. Maybe he was drinking too many Red Bulls. Maybe he was taking this kind of medicine. Whenever you saw somebody drop dead, they knew it was God's judgment. Listen, if you, if you go back to that 2 Samuel text, they're dancing, they're celebrating, they're having a good time, and in a moment, Uzzah falls dead. And there's this hush. There's this silence. There's this fear. But one thing they didn't question was why. They knew that God was saying something. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira fall dead, and it says that the whole assembly was afraid. It is the same reason that when Moses requests to see God, he tells him, no one like you, no one like us, can see God and live. So why is Uzzah dead? Uzzah is dead because... He thinks that his good intention is enough to bring him to God. And God has made it clear to us that our good works and our good intentions, no matter how sincere, as Charles Spurgeon said, will always have some dirt in them. So we have to figure this out. It sounds very condemning. It's very damning to think where there's this holy God who has created me in his image, yet I am distant from him. I can't touch him. If we are sinners and if we are so far apart from this holy God, how can we touch him? And it makes me think. I think it's one of the, the things that makes the uh, encounter that Jesus has so amazing with the woman with the issue of blood. When everyone was surrounding him, She did what she could in order to get to him, and she touched him. She touched him. And in this crowd of people, Jesus says, who touched me? Listen, if this were God, not veiled by flesh, what would have happened, not just to her touching him, to the people seeing him? They would all die. Yet how can she touch the God... Man in flesh. Because he was encasing the holiness of God in the likeness of sinful man so that this sinful woman with an issue of blood could scratch and claw her way and touch him and be healed. But you see, Everybody wants to say, and they're wrong, and we've all been wrong about this text. She was healed because of what she did. No, she wasn't. 
She was healed because of who she touched. It wasn't because of who she was. It wasn't because of what she did. It was because of what he was. It was because of who he was and what he would do. See, she wasn't just healed physically. But she had actually in that one moment been healed from her greatest sickness. Which was that she was inflicted with the condition that is common to man, which is sin. Jesus was the very holiness of God because he was God yet clothed in flesh. He was veiling his glory so that we could finally behold him. The glory of God that would bring about death was now there to bring life to us all. That is why when Jesus gives himself up, the veil was torn because it wasn't just the veil that was removed between the people and the temple, but the veil that was there between us and God had now been removed because we now have a mediator, an intercessor, who is our go-between that we can now approach his throne boldly having received the grace that was afforded to us by Jesus Christ on the cross. He can now be touched because he felt everything that we feel. That veil was torn and that which separated us from God was now removed. We came face to face with the holiness of God. A God so holy that when he died, it brought darkness, pitch black for three hours. What do we learn from this? What do we learn? What's this? It's the whole purpose of this service. We serve a holy and righteous God. One who is not going to be touched by your good deeds. He is not going to be touched by your cheap righteousness. He is not going to be touched by you trying to do the right thing and make the right decision. In fact, if you bring your good deeds and your righteousness before him, you have no opportunity to touch him. Our only hope our only hope is that his righteousness would touch us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you are righteous. God, we thank you actually that our good deeds don't come close to you. God, I'm grateful that my righteousness does not invoke your presence, that my prayers do not reshape your will because you are so holy and so infinite and so perfect that you came down in the likeness of sinful flesh just to give us the opportunity to be made right before you. God, it is so easy for us to lean on that which we can easily present to you, which is our goodness which are our works, 
which is our righteousness. But God, help us see that unless we bear the righteousness of Jesus, we have no shot. We have no chance. We have no hope. God, we are grateful that in in your common grace that you have not killed us in our attempts to profane you, that you have not destroyed us in our attempts to make you like these other false gods, but that you have given us grace and more grace. God, I do pray if there is anyone in this room, if there is anyone who is watching, who is attempting to grasp you, who is attempting to draw themselves to you through their good works, that they will realize today that there is nothing good that dwells in our sinful flesh and that you do not accept cheap favors, you do not accept phony righteousness, but that our only hope is that we would repent and believe the gospel. That you have stood in the gap, that you have made the offering, the sacrifice that we could not make for ourselves, and that you have given us, as a result, those of us who believe eternal life, knowing that we will never be condemned, knowing that one day we will stand before this holy and righteous God and finally. Behold him, unveiled, because we will see him, but we will also be like him. And it is in this we hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.